The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And a big welcome to everyone. And one of the documents just goes, just outlines in a simple way the Buddha's 16 instructions. We call it for mindfulness of breathing, but really the breath is the predominant, exclusive object of awareness only for the first two steps. And then the breathing process is in the background for the rest, for the other 14 instructions. It's just like there to remind us, oh yeah, the mind is still present. How do I know? Because I'm aware of breathing in and breathing out. But we're really noticing different aspects of the mind and body for most of the training. And I know I, I like to kind of say this up front, that it can feel somewhat artificial, like even the way I instructed us today during the guided meditation. It's a little bit cookie cutter. You do this, then you do that, then you do this. But we're learning a map so that we can, kind of like learning scales when you learn the piano. So then you don't have to be tied to the linear progression of the map, but you understand the map like how to be aware, what to do with present moment awareness. Because the basic principle in the Buddhist teachings is it really matters what we pay attention to and how we pay attention. In a way, this is the central karmic act. You, you might think like whether I steal is the most, you know, or whether I'm nice to my partner or whether, you know, I take turns in traffic or things like that. Yeah, those are how we behave lays something down on our heart. The impression when I'm judgmental, that affects my mind going forward. But in a more subtle and ongoing way, every single moment, like this moment, we're paying attention to, like the present moment is vast. So what are we paying attention to now? And what does that set in motion in our mind? What and how are we paying attention right now? And is that setting in motion what we really most deeply desire to set in motion? So if I'm here paying attention to some emotional sensitivity, reactivity, like what are you thinking about me? Do you like me? Well, what does that paying attention to that with worry, with fear, in that way, what does that set in motion? Who do I become when that's what I pay attention to? I become neurotic. I become more hypersensitive to what I think people are thinking of me, right? So it matters. How about if we're sitting here, you know, or you're sitting there and, and just sensing Mark's a human being, a suffering being, just like the rest of us, you know? What does that set in motion? Maybe a tender-heartedness or whatever. So it just, and it's not so much that there's a right way or a wrong way, there are more and less skillful ways to be paying attention. And it doesn't matter if it's subtle, it matters. It still matters. Just because it's subtle doesn't like mean it doesn't matter to us. And part of spiritual life, you could say, is like a willingness to own that subtle stuff matter. 
<laughs> and wishing that it didn't matter doesn't make it not matter. It just makes us avoid taking up the responsibility. And you see how that directly supports the wholesome desire to want to be more sensitive? Because we need to be sensitive to more and more subtle stuff if we're going to have any chance at real happiness. If we stay on the surface of life, we won't really uncover the happiness that's available. So, um, remember, we don't really have time in the morning instructions, the Sunday morning program, to do a lot of Q&A, but your questions, your reflections are really useful. So you're always welcome to send questions into the center and then I'll weave them in to the upcoming weeks. And what I want to talk about, which is what I had been talking about uh, earlier in September when I was here for the Sunday morning program, is this um, movement like toward the conclusion of the first four instructions. It really comes to fruition with the fourth instruction, one trains oneself while we're breathing in, to keep in mind, to be aware of embodied calm, embodied well-being. And that doesn't mean our body's perfect. We still might have, we will have our aches and pains or the chronic effects of old age and all the other stuff that is just there karmically in the body because of whatever came before for the body. But what can change when we have done the first three instructions sincerely with some confidence is now the mind that knows, the mind that is capable of being present, intimate, is intimate with the body without judgment, without picking and choosing, right? Because the previous instruction was one trains oneself while breathing in, experiencing the whole body. One trains oneself while breathing out, experiencing the whole body. And that's a real training because it's not easy. Like as we open to our body, it's almost like the attention gets tracked to whatever threat, whatever pain, discomfort we feel in the body. Just like when we're aware in the of the wider space, like the visual space of our experience. We notice what we like, the visual experiences that we like. We tend to notice the visual experiences that repulse us, and then we generally ignore the rest. So even with our visual experience, like notice that we have the capacity, and, and check this out right now with me if you would, you know, as we're gazing at the computer screen or here in the room, just soften the gaze so you're, you're aware of the periphery of your visual experience. You're not fixating the visual attention on one visual object, kind of that soft, wide, inclusive awareness of the visual field. You see, that's a different way of being present with seeing, isn't it? And we can do the same with physical sensations. But it's we gotta understand, it's not our habit 
to be aware of the body, physicality, sensation in that way. Right? We fixate on what's interesting. Pleasure in the body, pain in the body, ignore the rest. But there's something that happens when we can sustain that inclusive, trusting, non-judging awareness of the whole body. Through the duration of an in-breath, through the duration of an out-breath, and on and on like that with some continuity, beginning again when the mind slips off into distraction, beginning again, beginning again, build that continuity. What happens is a kind of healing between the mind that's knowing, the mind that's sensing, and the body that's being sensed. And it's directly, subjectively, actually experienced as a kind of real, as real as anything's real, sense of bodily well-being. It feels good. Calm, well-being, ease of the body. These are different words or phrases we could use to describe what the Buddha is asking us to keep in mind as we breathe in and we breathe out to persist so initially, we might not notice any of that calm or that sense of embodied well-being. But then all we're doing is we're being interested in it, actually sincerely interested in it as we breathe in. So whatever that is, that 10 seconds or 15 seconds it takes to breathe in, can I sustain interest in bodily calm, bodily well-being? And you see, it's a direct counterweight to the habit to want to pay attention to problems in the body, aches in the body. Like I had a bad fall on my elbow about a year ago, really terrible. I was doing some yard work and I fell on some concrete and the elbow took it. And that really hurt for about three months and then it healed and it wasn't fractured or anything. But I've been noticing now, I, I just tell myself, because I think it's a good story, <laughs> that the intense pain, I mean, it's almost like my shoulder's lame, and that somehow the trauma from the fall 14 months ago is now finally working its way up. Because I noticed right in that moment, you know how I could kind of go into slow motion as I was falling back, and then the elbow took the hit. Um, and it was like slow motion. And I remember that transference going right into the shoulder, like just so slow, you know, and just thinking, oh, poor shoulder. <laughs> but I never noticed that in the months when the elbow was like so delicate and painful. But now, 14 months later, it's like something's going on in my shoulder. And it, it's like that attention and the habit of fear wants to fix it, wants to glom on to that problem. But it, it sort of, re, that way of paying attention can re-traumatize the trauma, can reactivate it. Because, you know, it's, <laughs> this is a gross example, but it's, it's somewhat funny. But my, my best friend from college and for several years after college, we lived together and yeah, just a dear one in my life. I don't see him too much anymore, but we went backpacking right uh, months right after we graduated from college out in the West Coast, and 
we were some high peak and having to hop from boulder to boulder and he fell and really hit his rib hard. And I, you know, ran back to him, you know, standing there next to him, asking like, are you okay? And he screams, get off my hand. Because <laughs> I was standing there with my big hiking books that's on his hand. You know, and it's that, it's like not having that breadth of awareness, right? Like really attentive, but not very wise, right? And that's, that's the sort of childlike nature of our attention. It's like we're, we're, we presume we're in a dangerous place and we need that kind of tight vigilance, but not that kind of relaxed, wide, comprehending presence that comprehends like how to show up. Oh, let's be inclusive. Yeah, there's pain in the shoulder. Something weird's going on in the shoulder. But do I need to fixate on that? Does it, is that helpful? No. What's actually helpful because of the way the body and mind works is everything, including shoulder injuries, is an integrated happening. Things don't really exist in isolated ways, like it's a shoulder problem, right? For one thing, it didn't happen in the shoulder. <laughs> You know, it's a life problem, you know, an existence, a mind-body problem. It's always a mind-body problem. And the only way we can be helpful is if we meet the moment with this wise, inclusive, soft, wide sensitivity. That's what's helpful. And so, in the third instruction, we're bringing that kind of attention to the body. We're learning not to go based on where there's pain, but to have a more inclusive and generous presence. And then the body, the experience of the body and the mind together, the knowing mind, knowing the physicality of the body, is a sense of well-being. In the same way, when you have an interaction with a dear one, a real friend, and you, you feel like, they're just there in a non-judging way. And they're not even presuming they know you because they're so there, they're not in their idea of who you are. They're just there because they love you, they care enough to be open, to meet you now, not to meet their idea of you. You know how good that feels. It feels really good. I try to be there like this morning, I mean, my partner Wynn is on the East Coast taking care of her older mom. And um, so I'm home alone with my four-legged friend. And I, I try to have a couple times every day that kind of moment with the cat. And it seems like the cat responds, like to be with the cat in a fresh way, not on autopilot, really sort of that sensitivity, like the way I'm showing up is uh, responding nimbly immediately with all the signals. Not, not based on the presumption of how it worked last time even. And of course this is the model for how to live our life in that fresh, 
uncontrived way, not driven by expectations or even previous experience. It's not that previous experience doesn't inform, but it isn't defined. It isn't defining how we're relating. So the same with the third and fourth instruction. And then here's the important thing about then the transition from the fourth instruction. And remember, we have the cheat sheet. I'm really inviting people who are along for the ride, these Sunday morning and Sunday evening talks in the fall, when we're going through the 16 instructions, the Buddha's most complete instructions for the path and for meditation. You know, and this a very important transition from the fourth instruction where he's asking us to train ourselves to notice embodied well-being, embodied calm. We need to feel good in the body in this embodied way because it makes us feel safe. When we feel really safe, what do you imagine is the natural response of the heart and mind when we feel really, really safe. We stop trying to control everything. We're much more willing to just let things be. And then this really helps us understand the fifth instruction, where we're really moving now to the activity of the mind. The first four instructions it's about healing how the knowing mind is being intimate with the body, physicality, but also seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, the, scent, the kind of five physical senses. But it's really dominated by physicality, the sensations, right? How to be with that in a way that leaves the heart, body with this embodied well-being and the safety. And then when we feel safe, the mind relaxes its habits of control. And what starts to creep in to awareness, what awareness can be aware of, is the activity of the moment, the activity of the body and the mind, without control, without the mind imposing, projecting control. And that's what I meant in the instructions, you might remember, I, I brought in that word flow. Just because uh, in psychology, it's, it's kind of a technical term now, you know, the flow experience, right? And it's when there's activity, you could be making love, you could be playing basketball, you could be knitting, you could be cooking, you could be breathing in and breathing out. You could be chanting or praying. You can be basically doing anything because it's not about the doing, it's there's an awareness of the doing, of the activity of body and mind, but nothing in that awareness is resisting or creating friction with the activity of the body and mind. And so what is perceived directly, experientially, subjectively, right here, me experiencing it, is the activity of the moment without resistance. And that's, for me, that's how I define joy. Joy is life minus friction. Joy is the activity of the mind and body, which is just the same as life. Life 
is the activity of the mind and body being known. Most of the time, it's life, activity being known, and the friction of fear and greed and denial and distraction. All of these are mind-imposed friction. But we can learn to be aware of the activity of the present moment, the activity of life, without that friction, that resistance, that projection. And when we do, subjectively it's experienced as a lightness of heart. Because it's about what's not there, it's the, the friction not being there. So joy isn't so much what's there, as much as it is what's not there. The resistance has begun to go away, joy starts to creep in. And the training, and the, the Buddha says that, right, the instruction is, one trains oneself. Remember, it's the Buddha saying, hey, this isn't the habit of your mind, so you have to see this as a training. And the way you train is you keep in mind something that's not easy to keep in mind, because it's not your habit. Your habit is to notice friction and resistance. That's the habit of the mind where there are sparks, where there's resistance, where there's a fixation. But I'm asking you, trust me, please train yourself. As you're breathing in, it's only 20 seconds or whatever, can you keep in mind anywhere in your body-mind experience an experience of activity without resistance? And let's call that joy. PT. Sometimes translated as rapture. But it, that rapture, you know, we can get tight with rapture too, but real rapture is a movement of joy without any resistance to the joy. Like, uh, it's really, sometimes in a, I don't know, unsophisticated way, I call it the opposite of a panic attack. Right, because a panic attack is a movement of anxiety that leads to more constriction, which amplifies the movement of anxiety. Because whatever that energy that's moving when we're panicking, when we're anxious, when we're worried, now it has a more narrow passageway. So it gets, and then that makes us narrow it more, right? And then all of a sudden we feel like you're going to explode. And that's what we call a panic attack. A lot of energy moving through a very constricted space until it feels it can't move, and then it feels like it's going to explode. Now joy is the opposite. There's movement, and initially, the constricted space opens and it starts to feel good. So interestingly, the beginnings of joy are much more dramatic than when joy begins to mature. When it's really mature, joy is like a pervasive lightness of heart. It doesn't actually stand out, it's pretty subtle. But when we've been really, when energy's been really constricted and the grip begins to release, it can feel pretty like something's breaking open. You know, something, a heart that's, or I sometimes use that, I don't know if it was true for you, but in the early 60s when I was in elementary school, like second grade or something, they, there was this weird thing that went around where, you know, kids would say, okay, squeeze your fist as tight as you can. Anybody remember this? And then they do all sort of weird things that probably didn't have anything to do. And it was almost like a little, sort of hypnotic thing, because they've had you like holding your fist for two or three minutes, and they'd say, 
now, can you open your fist? It's like, oh my God. <laughs> of course, you could eventually, but because of the sort of gimmick of the whole, you know, sort of psycho kind of thing, you kind of felt like they, they had you in a trap. And it's a little bit like this chronic habit of being afraid, being controlling, not feeling good enough. We have these ways that we've, you know, these vortex, these habits of being tight. And so when we have a lot of embodied well-being, the fourth instruction, and we keep it in mind, it's a direct challenge. It's basically in a deep, deep way saying, honey, I don't think you have to be tight. And the system begins to relax and we can start to notice movement without friction. And it might be just a little lightness, a little kind of fluttering in your heart. Just subtle, like vibration, but unrestricted. But wherever, however, keep it in mind as you breathe in. Keep it in mind as you breathe out. Just keep joy in mind. And during the, that's more in the meditative sense. And then during the day, just believe as an experiment of truth that joy is available. As you're walking down the street, as you're cooking, as you're doing whatever, that that everything happening on its own, you doing what you're doing, but happening on its own, everything okay. Not that the world is just, not that there isn't suffering, that right now the heart's going to train and just letting it all rip, letting it all be, letting the activity of the moment move. So you're doing what you're doing, you're not trying to do it better or like a Buddhist, just letting everything be. So if you're a neurotic one in this moment, you're letting that be. And then feeling that lightness of heart, of not having to be the one who has to hold it all together, who has to do it all. And notice the lightness and keep that lightness in mind, that buoyancy of the heart, that bright interest. This is our homework. You know, it has been for a while, I've been reminding us. This is a powerful counter-programming, especially given the news in our information age where we're, the economy is basically run by scaring people into purchasing stuff, right? Including purchasing more information and then purchasing stuff that help take us down from our stress, you know? But it's just more of the same, really. So can we, how can we become somebody who is interested in uh, joy that's always available. Which is really related to this wisdom. I don't know if people were here two weeks ago when I talked about the safety of sila, moral sensitivity, the safety of samadhi, the stability of present moment awareness, and the safety of wisdom I didn't get to talk about. But this is the safety of wisdom. The joy is really the beginning of it. It's like everything is wild, and unfixed, and neither good nor bad. It's just the activity of life. And the question is, it's already moving. Can that be okay? Life, 
internal, external. It's already happening. Friction, resistance, constriction is extra, unnecessary suffering. It doesn't, we're not becoming idealistic just because we're relaxing. If something needs to be done, we're going to be more confident at doing it because we're unfixed, not tight. So experiencing joy, it's sort of like this challenging question like, is joy selfish? Is joy dysfunctional? Is joy inappropriate, given the way I am, given the way the world is? And we have to really challenge the unconscious answers we have to those questions. Because basically we think, yeah, joy is selfish, joy is inappropriate, it's dysfunctional. When the world, or when I'm like this, joy definitely isn't appropriate. Now whether we'd say that out loud, a lot of us are conditioned, we, we're conditioned to think that, to believe that. That lightness of heart, not really appropriate. And, and part of it is we think it's a setup for betrayal. Because we our experience of joy is when we're disconnected. You know, when we're delighting in a stupid TV show that's kind of lifted our heart a little bit. And underneath we kind of know this dark truth, it's going to be over in 35 minutes. <laughs> and so we don't really trust the high because the high is dependent on something that's actually not trustworthy. So the question is, can we find a joy that isn't a setup for betrayal? Then that joy doesn't, we don't have to feel as a setup. It's trustworthy and we can learn to integrate it in and then we become a more resilient human being. So we'll come back to joy next Sunday and start to look how joy can morph into a more profound happiness. Sukha is the Pali word for ease, ease of heart. It's like the equivalent of that embodied well-being. There's a, a kind of ease of heart that exists for the mind-heart, that, that deeper trust, that deeper relaxation of the heart, the undefended contentment undefended heart. So that's where we'll go next week and uh, want to thank everybody for coming. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org.